Good morning again. And uh, this morning we are in our Kingdom Come series. And we're working our way through Matthew's gospel, seeing what it means to live as Jesus followers. Today we're in Matthew chapter 5, which is the first chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. It spans chapter 5 to 7. But as we begin today, I just want to lay a little bit of groundwork just before our reader uh, Josh shares with us and reads from the text. The Sermon on the Mount is the announcement of the kingdom by Jesus. And it defines how kingdom people live. It is that, but it's also more. Jesus is very consciously and deliberately denouncing the teaching and approach of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Over and over again, we're going to see both in this and the other chapters that he is pitting his interpretation of God's righteousness against theirs. And that's why Jesus ends the whole of the Sermon on the Mount the way he does. He tells a parable of a wise builder and a foolish one. The wise ones, his house stands firm on the rock through the storms. The foolish one, not at all. As Jesus concludes his message, he says this, Therefore, everyone here hears these words of mine and then puts them into practice, is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock, and then he tells the story. And the question still comes to us. Will we build our lives on what Jesus says? Will we trust him to the exclusion of all other ways of living? That's the key question. And the result, Jesus says, is one of two things. One, we remain standing on the rock or utter disaster and destruction. So beginning this week, let's key in on Jesus' words because everything Jesus says depends on it. Josh, reading from Matthew 5. So we're starting Matthew 5. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go, be reconciled with them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand over, hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown in prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into the fire. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Give, the, give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Thank you, Josh. There was a man who was preparing to go away on a business trip, and uh, and he knew he'd be leaving his wife and, and kids uh, for three nights. So he was concerned that his kids wouldn't be a burden to his wife. So he pulled his oldest son aside, who was nine years old, and he said, when I'm away, just think, what would dad do? He had in mind, of course, things like washing the dishes or making sure that the garbage got out to the curb in time. When he returned, he asked his wife what his son had done. It was very strange. Oh, the dad said, what, what happened? Well, after breakfast, he poured himself a second cup of coffee. He turned on some loud music, and he sat down to read the paper for an hour in the living room. 
The father, of course, was left wondering if his son obeyed him a little bit too accurately. Um, As we heard at the end of this chapter, about halfway through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he says to his followers, perhaps a bit to their astonishment and certainly to ours, be perfect just as your heavenly father is perfect. In this point, we're probably shaking our heads and we're saying, wow, um, impossible. And we would probably be right. That is, if the sermon was only about us and us trying harder. If it was just about us and what we must do, we could read it as a piece of idealism, but then leave it there and say, well, it's impossible, it's idealistic, and walk away completely unchanged. But it's not idealism. Jesus is totally serious. He means every word he said. And hopefully we'll understand a few more of those words a bit more this morning. But it isn't just idealism we can shrug off from and walk away unchanged. And here's my admission. I could spend five weeks just on this chapter. So I will not (laughs) explain everything unless you want to be here till three o'clock. Here's what we need to see. It's actually not just about us. This sermon is about Jesus announcing the wonderful news. News that if we take it in and let God do his work inside of us, will make us into the sort of people who will actually be a part of God's kingdom come. Who will be a part of Jesus' new way of being human that we saw defined this morning. Let's pray as we begin. God, we are desperate to understand what your son is calling us into. Give us an openness to all that you have for us today. Enable us not only to understand the message of this text, but just as importantly, to stand under your loving leadership, to align ourselves with your son in the power of the Holy Spirit. We do pray, Jesus, as you taught us, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And to that we say, amen. Perhaps you can picture this scene. Jesus has just gone up onto a mountain, and he sits down. And those who are already his followers, they gather around close to him. Sea of Galilee is behind him in the distance, and he begins to speak about blessedness. And as he does, you can imagine the disciples thinking, this is all backwards. It's Upside down. I mean, Jesus says this with a straight face. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus just states that. We expect a question mark after it. Blessed are the poor in spirit? Really? See, the poor are those who are experiencing financial insecurity. The poor in spirit, those who are emotionally oppressed, who are disillusioned, who are spiritually and morally bankrupt, and they know it, they are in need of God's help. No one in their world is saying that those people are blessed. No one in our world is saying that either. The predominant worldview is that material blessing was a sign of God's blessing, or material possessions, pardon me, were a sign of God's blessing, not being broken, not being poor. So Jesus flips it on its head. Jesus is reorienting the whole world for his hearers, and he will for us too if we listen. In our day, people still point to what they have, their family, their friends, their job, and they say, yeah, I'm blessed. Look at the evidence. Jesus says something so different and so gracious. You who know pain, 
in brokenness. You're aware of your guilt. You know your sin and that you need forgiveness. And no, everything isn't okay right now, actually. Guess what? Blessed by God are you. The kingdom, you are posed, poised, pardon me, to take part in that. Yes, you. Shock and delight. Because this kingdom is for those who know they need God. Because when, when that's the case, then there's room in our heart for Jesus to come in and be our king, to set up his throne in our life. The kingdom of heaven is theirs, present tense. The rest of the blessings that Jesus makes these statements about, they reflect what the kingdom is all about. You might say they are the constitution of the kingdom. Their life in the key of gospel. But now, what does Jesus even mean when he says kingdom of heaven? Like, is that about some place that we go to after we die? Well, let me answer it by this. We see in the very beginning of the Bible, this picture of the overlap of heaven. This is God's space where God reigns and earth. And God is walking with the humans in the Garden of Eden. Heaven and earth are actually overlapping. They're interconnected. They're integrated. But in the opening chapters of the Bible, we see that God's space and human space, they become divided by human rebellion because of our treason against the king, because of my rebellion. We all know something about this. Failing to live in line with God as our king, our loving leader, that's what the Bible calls sin. It's giving God the middle finger because we wanted to be king or queen ourselves, the kingdom of me. And that breaks relationship with God and relationships with others, and we know it because we do live in the real world. So then the question is, what hope is there for the world? Will the overlap of heaven and earth ever be restored? The world finally put right, our relationships healed. How could that be? Here's how. God himself, Jesus, the king, actually comes, is present as both fully God and fully human at the same time. Matthew has already told us that the little baby that's in the manger here is God with us. He is in his own nature, fully God, fully human, the overlap of heaven and earth. And Jesus' first message is simple. He says, repent, change your heart, change your mind, change your allegiance to me. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. How is it near? Because Jesus, the king, is near. He has come to reunite heaven and earth God and humanity. Through his death and resurrection, he restores what was broken and lost. So the kingdom of heaven is life with Jesus as king. It's here already, and it will finally and fully come in all its glory when Jesus returns and takes up the throne over all, once and for all. So what do we make of Jesus' words then in the here and now? Well, that's what the rest of the sermon will show us. First, it's literally true that those who are poor in spirit, who, are, who know that they need God's forgiveness and new life, these people, the kingdom of heaven is theirs, like already. If you've trusted in Jesus, if he is your king, guess where the kingdom of heaven is? To some extent, wherever Jesus reigns, there is the kingdom. 
If he reigns in your life, there is the kingdom. If he reigns in our community, there is the kingdom. Oh, it's not finally and fully here, not until Jesus returns, but we are to be those people who are out into the real world, the overlap of heaven and earth, God's kingdom come in you. So the question is, have you come to that place yet where Jesus reigns as king in your life? Where you've opened yourself to receive his forgiveness? Have you stopped trying to justify yourself on your own terms? Make yourself out to be like, yes, I, I can save myself. Jesus says, you better give up that self-salvation um, project and become poor in spirit if you're going to have any hope of being a part of the kingdom of heaven. The question is, and the invitation from Jesus is, will you today? Will you open yourself to let his life come into you, free you, forgive you, make you new? You can. You can trust him today. See, this is such wonderful news because those who are meek, not the tyrannical, not the harsh, but the meek, those who exercise their power in gentle ways, it is they that get the earth in the end. Wonderful news for the pure in heart, for they will see God, for the merciful, because you'll receive mercy. Jesus rounds off his wonderful news, which sounds backwards in our ears, by saying wonderful news even for those who are persecuted because of righteousness, because of living in the God way, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this is so upside down of what we think. But it is wonderful news in the ears of all who are longing for the world to be put right again, for God's righteous ways, for peacemaking to win out in the end. Jesus says that longing in you, it's not a pipe dream. It will come to be. And I was talking with a friend this week who experienced a lot of pressure as a, as a teen. He was often estranged and bullied because of his faith in Jesus. And he said it was this description of the kingdom that enabled him not to retaliate, but to actually love his neighbor, even his enemies. It really is wonderful news that God will one day put the world right side up again, where God's ways are the ways, his kingdom come, and it does come for all of us who put our trust in Jesus. We get to be a part of that glorious future, a future we even live into now. And that's what the rest of the sermon is about. Jesus goes on to say, you are the salt of the earth. Now, salt in the ancient world was used to preserve that which would otherwise go rotten, and it to bring out the good flavors in food. So kingdom people are those who would preserve what's good about our world and who bring out the richness of flavors of, of those around us. But we need to stay salty. That is, not to conform to the evil patterns of the world, but to be truly distinct. How would we do that? <laughs> Jesus shows us. Now, in our Bibles, we find out that it says God shows no favoritism. D does God have favorites? The answer is yes. no. The answer is, thanks, Debbie, it is no. There's no favoritism with God. But we see this, that God actually chooses a people, Israel, for himself. So what gives then? Here's what gives. They are chosen, not as though God is playing favorites, but to be distinct from all the nations around them, living according to God's ways in order to draw the rest of the nations to God. 
They are to be salty, meaning distinct from the world, but for the sake of others, not for their own sake. But then Jesus says, if salt loses its saltiness, it's good for nothing. If it's no longer distinct from the world, it's useless for its purpose. And here's what we need to see. At this point in history, Israel, rather than being distinct from the nations around them, in in order to show them the goodness of God and draw them to God, many in Israel had a deep-seated hatred for the Gentiles, for those who were not Jewish. They wanted to see the Roman oppressors kicked out, punished by God. Rather than being distinct from the world then, for the sake of others, the religious leaders of Jesus' day were acting just like the nations, exactly like them. Military might, that's what we're using to get political power. That's our aim. In the rest of Jesus' sermon, Jesus shows us what being the salt of the earth will be like, and it really means being distinct. Jesus says that kingdom people will need a right way of living, a righteousness that outstrips the Pharisees and religious leaders. What does Jesus mean by that? Only by following Jesus. His interpretation of God's ways over and against what the Pharisees teach. It's as if Jesus were saying, look, the teachers of the law, boy, they're not getting it right. If they were, they would be teaching you to do these things that I'm teaching you about but they don't. They're using the law to justify hating your enemies rather than loving them. So Jesus is saying, I stand in line with the scriptures. I want to show you how to live rightly before God. The Pharisees, they're using the law to justify treating their neighbors like enemies, and Jesus sets that right. He calls us to love our neighbors and our enemies. You've heard it said, Jesus says, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, it's an Aramaic word of contempt toward another. They're answerable to court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus' words cut to the heart. They actually reveal the heart of God, too. Jesus says using our words in a harsh, abrasive, abusive, and condemning way, we are setting ourselves up to be in opposition to God. For this behavior, it actually dehumanizes the other and ourselves in the process. A heart that stays abusive or intent on that abusive and hateful way of speech and life Unless there is change, Jesus says, we'll end up ultimately in Gehenna. And that's a a word we often translate as hell. Now, Gehenna was a smoldering garbage dump in Jerusalem in the Valley of Hinnom. And basically this, uh, Jesus uses that consistently as a picture of God's final judgment. Essentially, we invite hell into our hearts, into our way of thinking and living. If we do that... That will be our eternal destiny as well. A sort of ever-burning garbage dump. It will mean being cut off from God and his glorious kingdom and future. Instead, Jesus says, we're to take relational wholeness so seriously that we will be people who seek restored relationship. Even hitting the pause button on worship in order to go and make things right with someone else before we come back and begin to worship God 
again. One scholar says it like this, as long as you treat a brother or sister as an adversary, you have God for an adversary. Righteousness essentially means right relatedness. So maybe you need to make a phone call today. Make a priority of that relational wholeness. Uh, We're starting that series with our young adults tomorrow night called Pixels. It's about living with God's wisdom in a digital age. But there's one big piece that we'll look at in this series, and actually we need to look at this morning briefly, is that when we interact with others through, through, through texting, through, through messenger, it's so easy to speak harshly or to be harmful. Why? Well, because we're looking at a screen, not a person. Our interaction with another is mediated through a form of media. What's the problem with that? The problem is we don't see the other as our brother or sister when they're not embodied in front of us. In that case, it's very easy just to text the first thing that pops into your head, to express our emotions in a way that can be very, very damaging because we're not looking the other in the eye and seeing the humanity in that person. So here's one of my boundaries. I've decided not to use texting or messenger or even email for anything other than basic information sharing, setting up an appointment, or offering some positive, helpful discussion or direction. Any conversation that could be highly emotionally charged or where there's you know, a need for a truth and love combined kind of conversation, anything that could even be potentially heard as harmful, that's for a face-to-face conversation, or at the very least for a phone call that rehumanizes relationships. And if we're taking Jesus seriously here, we'll be taking how we use our words seriously too. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus says. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the merciful, indeed. And again, Jesus takes the same tack with sexuality. He says, of course, sleeping with someone who's not your spouse, that is out of accord with God's way. It really is. And that's really clear in the Bible. But then Jesus pushes us not to suppose that our hearts are somehow right before God. If we're looking at someone else as an object and then fantasizing about them, he says, don't look at others with the intent of lusting in your hearts. Again, it dehumanizes the other. It makes them into an object. And when we dehumanize someone else, we dehumanize ourselves in the process. We become less than human. That's inviting hell, not heaven, to to be present in our hearts. And Jesus says, stay on that trajectory without changing it. That hell-aligned way of living that, that dehumanizes others. You keep doing that, Jesus says, and you yourself, your final destination, again, will be a place of destruction utterly. So Jesus' advice Take drastic action to change that behavior. Cut everything out of your life that leads to lusting. Gouge out your eye, cut off your hand. Yes, Jesus is using hyperbole. It's exaggeration, but it's not in a sense. And here's the sense. Because he says it would be far better to gouge out your eye than go where you're going if you stay on that trajectory of life. You're going to lose your whole self, not just an eye, not just a hand. So Jesus uses strong language because he means it. Our eternal destiny is tied to how we respond to his teaching. It's tied to how we treat 
others? Will Jesus, will we let Jesus lead us in the way that we rehumanize relationships? And that's just the first two examples. Know this, if you don't already, that if we have failed here, we can change our course by God's grace. We go back to the very first verse of Jesus' sermon. Blessed are those who recognize their need for God, those who are poor in spirit. We seek God's forgiveness and he, he grants it. And we seek by the power of his Holy Spirit to change our behaviors under his loving leadership. Now, Jesus also calls us the light of the world. His followers are a city on a hill that can't be hidden. Now, again, Israel at that point is called a light to the nations. Isaiah 49.6 says, The Lord says to his people, I will make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Do you see God's heart for the nations there? Does he have favorites? No. He wants everyone to come to a knowledge of him. He loves this world. But Israel is meant to live in such a way that the surrounding nations would be eager to come and find out about the one true God. But here's the irony, and it's really thick. Jerusalem was literally that city on a hill. That's where his hearers, Jesus' hearers, are thinking of Jerusalem when he says that. Here's the irony. Jerusalem and its religious leadership, what was supposed to be the light to the Gentiles, has utterly failed to do so. They are at this point in history utterly against the Gentiles. The Romans are occupying their land, for goodness sakes. No wonder their hearts are against the oppressors. But then Jesus says, and he means it, that when a Roman says, carry my gear, uh, people were legally indebted to carry it for one mile, but after one mile, they could just drop it and walk away. What does Jesus say? Don't be infuriated by the request of the Gentiles, but say, actually... Let me take it for two. What? Instead of cursing their enemies, they're not to curse them out even under their breath. No, Jesus says, love them. Pray for them. Do good to those who persecute you. That, that is not what the Pharisees are teaching them to do. That's not what Jerusalem has become. It may be a city on a hill, but it is not shining. But here, Jesus is sitting where? On a hill. And his followers, those ones who are engaged in listening to him, putting themselves underneath of his loving leadership, he points at them and says, you are a city on a hill. That's who you are. And they and we now are to let our light shine. Why? That when others see our good deeds, meaning the way when, when we live out the Jesus way, they will glorify our Father in heaven. And here's what we must see in closing. This sermon isn't only instruction, it is that, but it's also about Jesus himself. One scholar is right when he says, Jesus was the salt of the earth. He was the light of the world, set up on a hilltop, crucified for all to see becoming a beacon of hope and new life for everyone, drawing people to worship the Father, embodying the new way of self-giving love, which is the deepest fulfillment of the law and the prophets. As we heard in this text, Jesus says that he's the one who accomplishes the law, who fulfills it, who fills it full. When Jesus 
says that he has come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, what does he mean? At least two things. One, he is the authoritative interpreter of the scriptures. Here, Jesus acts like he has the final word when it comes to interpreting the Bible. Like, doesn't anyone else's opinion count? You have heard it said. And he almost certainly is pointing at the Pharisees at this point in their interpretation. But I tell you, Jesus places himself smack in the center as the authoritative interpreter of the scriptures. Scholar Rodney Reeves, he gets it right. He says, simply put, to do what Jesus said and did is to obey God. Jesus defined righteousness for all, even Pharisees. This means we can't say, well, Jesus, um, I mean, that's one interpretation of what God wants, but surely others have a valid opinion. And the short answer to that is no. No, they don't. The long answer is no, because Jesus is God himself, present in the flesh, teaching you how to live Godward. And that's the long answer. (laughs) Second point, and to that point, Jesus is achieving the long, what the long story of Israel has been pointing to all along. He is the living embodiment of God's design for humanity because he is God with us. He is the overlap of heaven and earth embodied. See, the Sermon on the Mount is not just instruction for how to live well. It's about Jesus himself. It's his way of being human. This is the blueprint of Jesus' own life. And now he invites us because, now here's the trick, Because of Jesus' death and resurrection on our part, he becomes our righteousness. It's by putting our trust in him and what he's accomplished that we actually could become this sort of people. You can't do this on your own. Unless the Holy Spirit comes in and regenerates you and makes you a new kind of creation, forget about it. But when Jesus is your righteousness, you actually can live in a righteous way too. N.T. Wright puts it really well. When they struck him, well, Let me back up. At the end of the gospel, we see that when Jesus is mocked, verbally abused, he doesn't respond. When they struck him, he took the pain. When they put the worst bit of Roman equipment on his back, the heavy cross piece on which he would be killed, he carried it out of the city to to the place of his own execution. When they nailed him to the cross, he prayed for them. See, Jesus' words here are not just a set of instructions to follow. They are what Jesus himself lived. He's not asking you to go somewhere where he himself hasn't already gone. Jesus himself loved us while we were his enemies, as Paul says in Romans 5, 8. And that, that's what enables us to actually live like that, to love our enemies too. Tim Keller says, you can love generously if you've been generously loved. And we have. So that final word of Jesus, that we're to become like our father, I mean, did he really mean it? He did. And of course, it's not something we can do on our own strength. It's a result of being generously loved. Jesus bearing the weight of our guilt and our shame and our sin in his own body, and he wins us back and now fills our hearts with that kind of love. That's what enables us to be able to live this out. Now, I realize we could get hung up on the word perfect quite easily. When we think of being perfect, we tend to think and fuss a lot about ourselves. In the Radiohead song, Creep, the writer says, I want a perfect body, I want a perfect soul. But notice, it's totally self-focused there. Perfect here is all about you. 
So perfectionism in our current setting is a focus on ourselves. It's about if and how we are perfect. And in that self-centeredness, we don't actually notice others. And if we do notice them, it's just for the sake of comparison, not to love them. So that's not what Jesus means here. In fact, he means the exact opposite of that. The Greek word means complete, be complete, be mature, just like your dad in heaven. We're to reflect and resemble the very heart and character of God our Father in the way we treat others. So for you, are you trusting Jesus as your loving leader? Are you taking his words into you as the words that direct your life? And are you, out of an awareness of your need for him, just putting all of your trust in what he's done for you? By God's grace, he is, he is making us the kind of people who can truly reflect and resemble the Father. And we're to be that as a community. And invite the worship team to come forward as we pray now. Jesus, thanks for telling us the truth about ourselves, about the kingdom, about you, and about the kind of way, what it looks like to live fully human and fully alive. We thank you, Jesus, that you not only taught us this, but you did it. We thank you that you not only interpret the scriptures rightly for us, but you fulfill them through your own death and resurrection so that we can become the righteousness of God because you've been our righteousness. We ask now, Lord, that you would send us from this place full of the Holy Spirit and life so that we could be agents of your light and life in the world. Amen.